Eric Weinstein's a mathematician and the director of Teal Capital, and he started this new podcast called The Portal. And his first uh, guest for the first episode was his friend and employer, Peter Thiel. And the entire discussion is going to center around their conclusions about um, the fact that the United States is currently experiencing relative stagnation in science and technology. So let's jump into the first thing Peter says about this. He says, it is always mysterious as to why it feels like we are the outliers, meaning him and Eric uh, agree on, on this basic tenet. And he says, why are we among the very few people who have reached these conclusions about the relative stagnation in science and technology? Um, why are we the ones that have reached the, these conclusions about the ways in which this stagnation is deranging our culture, politics, and society? So this is a three-hour podcast. Um, as with every uh, time I take notes, um, I just pull out the stuff that I think is useful in, in, uh, from the perspective of like entrepreneurship. They talk a lot about politics and, and history and, and war and stuff like that. I omitted most of that, and I just try to fi filter for things that are relative to um, uh, in terms of entrepreneurship. So just keep that in mind. Um, so it says, it is striking how out of sync they, meaning these views on stagnation of science and technology, feel with so much of our society. So this is one of the things that Peter Thiel is famous about. He's like, you know, contrarianism in some sense that he has some ideas that a lot of people disagree with agree on. And this is one of them. So he's going to, he's going to set up like, okay, I believe that there's uh, stagnation in science and technology, but what do other people believe? So he says the dominant narrative is something like we are in a world of fast scientific and technological progress. Obviously, Peter believes the opposite of this. Things are getting better all the time. There are some corner case problems and there is some dystopian risk because technology is so fast and so scary. It is a generally accelerating story. So uh, and he's saying the dominant narrative, what most people believe is that, yeah, technology and science, we're having rapid advancements and things are just moving faster. He's saying, if you look at it, um, things have been slowing down the last 50 years. So he says, I date, and this is him making his case. He says, I date this era of relative stagnation and slowed progress back to the 1970s. I think it has been close to a half of century of slowed progress. A lot of this, he, he just looks at, um, like, technological advancements in, in atoms, which he'll get into. Like He's like, yeah, of course it's getting, we've made a lot of progress in bits and the internet, software, computers. But out of that one domain, uh, in the world of real things, like things you can, tangible things you can touch and feel, um, everything's slowed down. I actually saw um, supporting evidence of this on Twitter the other day where somebody pointed out, like, we haven't set, the human species hasn't set a new speed, air speed record since the 1960s. So we're traveling as fast or actually slower if you think of things like the concord which are no longer in existence than people did you know 60 years ago um so he says uh i date this era of relative stagnation slow progress back to the 1970s i think it has been close to a half century of slow progress a big exception of this has been the world of bits so he always uses this when you hear him talk bits and uh, the difference between bits and atoms so bits are computer internet software he says the world of atoms has been much slower for something like 50 years and so Eric asked him the question, like, why do you think it's so hard to convince people of this and this being the relative stagnation of science and technology? And this is a really interesting idea, um, a very interesting idea. So he says the direct scientific questions are very hard to get a handle on. The reason for this is in late modernity, which is what we're living in now, there is simply too much knowledge for any single human to understand all of it. In this world of hyper-specialization, you have narrow groups of experts policing themselves and talking about how great they are. Um, and so he's like, well, I guess let me not trip over this point. He says, if you were to say in these fields, 
uh, like the hard sciences, physical things, uh, not much is happening. People just don't have the authority for this. There's a very different feel for science today than you had in 1800, 1900. You list some other thinkers from that time that could have a grasp of what's going on. But uh, he's saying special, basically the, the, the main point here is speciali- specialization makes it harder to get a handle on. And this is another, I think, just useful idea for life. And it's also why you see, unfortunately, like some entrepreneurs turn into be like scammers, like the um, what's the famous one that just happened? Uh, Elizabeth Holmes with uh, what is the company name? I can't think of it. The blood one. They wrote a bad blood bo- book on Theranos. There you go. So it says specialization. Specialization should make you suspicious. If it has gotten harder to evaluate what is going on, then it's gotten easier for people to lie and exaggerate. And then they wanted, he starts listing a bunch of cultural and social issues, like where these lies um, he feels happens. And, you know, he talks about, like, is globalization really good? What, like, we were told for 25 years that, it, that it's good, but it hasn't been good for our country. He feels it hasn't. Uh, he thinks there's lies in, in um, academia and, like, well, is college actually worth it? Um, he's famous for, for setting up the Theo Fellowship where it selects, it's, and he admits it's in this podcast it's not scalable. But it's like, hey, if you get into the best colleges, we're going to pay you to drop off because what a lot of people want is the prestige. It's not like they're going to these schools for education. Education's free on the internet for for everybody in the world. Like as much as deep and as, as long as you want to go, like you can go on a subject. No one can stop you. But what they're doing is it's really like he says, it's like this hybrid like um, credentialing slash insurance for, you know, the upper middle class and their kids. Um, so he, he, and this is why I, I listen to so much of what he has to say, cause he just has, he's such a weird, unique th- thinker that no one else talks about like this. And I like the fact that he calls, um, you know, th- there's a, there's a, there's a big issue with humanity that we all lie constantly. Every single person that you know and yourself has told a lie before. So we're very unreliable sources of information, which is really bizarre. Um, but at the same time, like we, we tend to forget this. So He's like, he's asked the question, like, why do these lies go unchallenged? Anything from like that, the effectiveness of academia, the benefits of globalization to the to the working class, uh, the benefits of these trade agreements in between nations. Like, obviously, it's a negotiation. One one side's going to get uh, the better of, of the other. And he says, listen, if you pretend the system is working, you are simultaneously signal, signaling that you are one of the few people who should succeed in it. And there's all like, then he has a more like thoughts on on the psychology of, of human beings, which I think is useful for entrepreneurs. Just understanding like the reason I think these 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 ideas are important for entrepreneurs is because you need a more accurate representation of how the world actually is to be able to to create a product or a service that people will value and love. And so he says uh, the benefits of broad learning, like why you know he, he doesn't just read one subject, he reads a bunch. He said the polymaths would be the people who could connect the dots. He also says they're dangerous to the existing institutions. He said they could say that there's not much technological and scientific progress going on in my department. There's not much going on in that department, and there's not much going on in that other department either. So they're kind of realizing that oh, everybody's kind of lying about this due to this this false spe- specialization, and they're always saying oh, we're right around the corner from this huge breakthrough. Whether it's in curing cancer, you've heard you know since the 1970s, we're right around the corner from curing cancer. To people in quantum computing, or like we're all, we're right around uh, the corner from building have this huge technological breakthrough. Are the people and 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 this is I think most um, 
like most pressing for the current time we're in is like the people that fear of automated like jobs are all going to be automated away peter takes the exact opposite approach He's like i see no evidence at all this is happening so i'll get to there in a minute um, so, and then one one note I just added to this note is something I've learned is like when you read a lot or learn in general, broad learning is just a way to detect BS. It's just, you just know a little bit about a lot and you understand human nature and you can you can pick up on people that are just straight up lying to you or, or trying to dissuade you or, or maybe trying to sell you something that is in their benefit and not yours. Um, so, and the part of this problem is like people co constantly lie to keep these institutions propped up. He says in a healthy system, you, you, you could have wild dissent and it is not threatening because everyone knows the system is healthy. In an unhealthy system, the dissent becomes much more dangerous. And so Eric brought, brings up the fact that he's approached by a professor one time and they're like, how, explain to me how your friend Peter thinks because I just had a conversation with him and he was basically unwilling to accept that academia was good and that we're making progress. And what Eric realized is like, oh my God, this guy is in a complete bubble. He's never run into an opposing opinion other than yes, more college is good. And again, I, and Peter makes this distinction as well. Like I'm a huge advocate of learning constantly, but I feel like it should be self-directed because if you're studying something you really love, then you'll apply yourself to your maximum ability and you'll like remember what you, um, you learn. But any curious or smart person that's been put through our schooling system knows like that's just beating the, the it's beating the curiosity and the love of learning out of us. So I, I'm not really a big fan personally of like prescribed, oh, everybody should know this set. Like I don't believe in top-down learning, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, so he says, in an unhealthy system, the dissent becomes more, much more dangerous. Um, so if, you, you know, if you're in academia, you start to criticize them, you're going to be ostracized. Um, he says, I don't see younger professors who are deeply critical of the university structure. I think this is just nuts. And he says, what does the $1.6 trillion pay for? I mean, the student loan debt. I think it's up to $1.7 right now. He says it pays for $1.6 trillion worth of lies about how great the system is. He says the more the debt, the crazier the system becomes. Now he's specifically talking about education. The larger the debt, the more you have to tell the lies. These things go together. At some point, this will break. And interesting enough, he thinks it's going to break within the next decade. More, He said if he had to bet it, he'd he think something changes within the next 10 years as opposed to the next 50 um, I'm not sure about that. I feel like these things can go on for very long because I have conversations with fellow parents and there is l very little realization that like they, they can know this. Oh, yeah, the student debt's a problem, but that doesn't stop them from just following the the what people were doing in the past. Um, they're still pushing their kids into expensive private schools. They're still trying to like force like <laughs> academic studies on a six year old, which I think is ridiculous. Um, they're still saying, oh, they got to get a good, good college so then they can have a good job. And I'm like, well, what if like college keeps increasing the price it is? Like the college is going to go from, you know, 40 to 50,000 a year to 100,000 a year. Is it still worth it then? Um, there's not a lot of, of unfortunately, like thought in, 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 and for something so important as your kid's education, I don't know. It just, I just feel like I'm alone on an island when I have these discussions. Um, okay, so this is, and then he's going to talk about like what is the pro, like what are we doing as a larger society? And you can think of all the other businesses that you could uh, potentially build to solve this problem because it's a massive problem. Like, what are you going to do when you have an entire two two generations, three generations of young people that can't buy anything because they're just saddled with debt for an education that's not getting them their job that they wanted to begin with? So this is, it's always dangerous to be burdened with too much debt. It does limit your freedom of action. Now, this is very important because how many of the books, if you listen to my other podcast founders, like almost 
almost every single founder talks about this, like being a good steward of your resources, not boxing yourself in. And basically another word of just saying, increase your optionality because we, we, we're living and working in complex adaptive systems. Like you cannot, you have to constantly increase your optionality because the future is not predictable. Well, if you're saddled with a bunch of debt, like your future is predictable. And he's saying, it seems really, especially pernicious to do this super early in your career. If out of the gate, you a hundred thousand dollars, it will demotivate you or push you into higher paying, very uncreative professions. Um, he says, if you get into an elite university, now here's a the kind of a dichotomy though. If you get into an elite university, it probably still makes sense to go. It probably doesn't make sense to go to the hundredth best university. There is a way it can work individually, even if it doesn't work for the country as a whole. So it's very confusing to people. A lot of people are like, okay, it's not going to work for the country as a whole. Maybe I agree with that, but it's going to work for my child. Uh, it's very difficult. It's a very hard problem to solve. Um, let's see. Oh, and then he talks about another issue, which I, I love too. Um, he says, we have super strict zoning laws, so house, house prices go up. We think about housing as a nest egg instead of a place to live. I would try to figure out ways to dial that back massively. So there's this huge, um, this huge, I hate to use the word trend, but development, I guess it might be a better word, in, in transportation, personal transportation. It's called micro-mobility is the term they put on. It's like basically the unbundling of a car. We realize that, hey, we have, um, speaking of the United States, like, you have the average car payment is like something like $568 a month to, for a depreciating asset. And it's just to move your physical body around. And a lot of some people, are, I think the average is paying like 25, a quarter of their income just on, on transportation and, and all the costs associated with that gas, insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens is you have a lot of smart entrepreneurs realizing like, well, what is the job that the car is actually doing? The job is it's trans, it's getting you from point A to B. Well, we, we can find we can find ways to unbundle that process and still get you from A to B at a lot cheaper. So like if you live in any of the, the cities, like these scooters or any these electric scooters are everywhere around my house. I was just uh, on vacation with my family in California. They're everywhere over there. Um, and what happens is I, I did the math because I was like, well, let's say you, you can walk around a city, right? At a very brisk pace. I'm a fast walker. <laughs> um, I'm always telling my daughters, like, we need to walk expeditiously towards our goals. Um, but let's say you could do, you can maintain four miles an hour. And most people are not, they, you know, maybe three miles an hour. Well, these scooters are moving at 20 miles an hour. So they're literally making you... Um, being able to cover the distance in a city four or five X faster than you could just walking and even much faster in places with heavy traffic than you could in a car. Well, I think the same thing is going to wind up having housing. I'm just not sure how, and I've seen other people attack it from different other ways, but this is a huge problem that he's, he's talking about. It's like, listen, housing is shelter. It's a, it should be treated like a product, like everything else in, in America and a few other countries. I don't have the data in front of me, but I know it's not like this in every country. It's like, it's treated as like an investment. And in, in many cases, like your most, like the largest investment a person makes and that, that has disastrous, um, externalities that we're, that we're kind of living through now. Um, so he says, then he talks about like, why are like people, like people and companies, like they play their part in, 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 um, and propping up these broken, screwed up systems. And he calls it a form of Stockholm syndrome. And he says, listen, when you're hiring for your company, you'd want to naturally hire for people who went to a good college because you went to a good college. So he said, if you brought in the hiring, maybe that would be self-defeating for your own position. Because now you're saying, yeah, maybe I went to, you know, the Ivy League or whatever. I'm not, obviously didn't. <laughs> um, and you want to hire and you're like, I'm going to go find other people like me because it makes me seem better. 
But if somebody could do your job just as good and that person didn't go to college or went to like the thousands best college, and I also find it dubious that we can actually rank educational institutions, but that's, I guess, for another day. Um, I, I, I find that to be complete bullcrap. Um, but it, like you, then that's a problem for you. This, this, this person is doing my old job you know, that I was trained at say, Stanford or wherever, wherever you went and they're doing it better or just as good. And they didn't have, they, they didn't even go to college or they went to a worse college. So you're going to avoid that because it's like what Charlie Munger tells us, like all of life, you can just study your incentives. Um, so he says, I think one should not underestimate how many people have a form of Stockholm syndrome here. And again, this is why these problems are so huge and it takes so long to change. Uh, this is really thought-provoking for me. He says, I don't see the automation, meaning automating all the way all the jobs, happening at all. We've been automating for 200-plus years since the Industrial and Agricultural Revolution. So it's interesting taking, thinking of it in terms of not something that happened with the invention of software and computers, but machines in general, anything that replaces human labor. He says, most jobs today are non-tradable service sector jobs that are not easily automated. And you see all these, um, they, they touch on like what the different like political pundits want to do and they made the point like they need to prove that it's actually happening first we're having these solutions and you haven't proved that there's a problem yet so i thought that was really interesting so this is kind of we just all accepted this problem i did too i was like oh we're screwed we're, everything's gonna be automated and i'm like well wait a minute where's the evidence of that i want to see it um so he talks about all of his ideas are about economic growth and that's why i think this all everything he's talking about ties into entrepreneurship and why i'm really an evangelist for entrepreneurship because we're at a 40-year low for the amount of created creation of new businesses uh we have wages stagnating even though we have nearly full employment all the things we want are going down in price all the things we need like housing education uh health is going up in price like this is a problem so he's saying it's very hard to see how societies in Western Europe of the United States can function without growth. When the pie stops growing, it becomes a zero-sum dynamic and the legislation process does not work. Peter thinks we need at least 3 to 4% economic growth per year to stave this off. And the reason I, I, I think entrepreneurship ties into this is because entrepreneurs draw, are the, they're the ones creating the new companies that eventually grow. They hire more people. They, they increase GDP. Like We need more people trying these things, even if they're tiny companies. They could, you know, it doesn't have to be all these huge uh, Microsoft, Google, all that other stuff. Um, it could very well be a bunch of, you know, and it could even be single, one person, two person, three person, 10, 20 people companies. We just need more entrepreneurs. Um, he says, I think a world without growth would be much more violent or a much more deformed, deformed world. So he talks about the reason he's so, um, he feels economic growth is imperative is because he studies what happens when economic growth stops, and that's when human nature takes over. And humans, like I always say, are the virtuosos of violence. You don't become an apex predator on a planet where 99.99% of all living species have been rendered extinct without being extremely skilled at violence. And so he talks about that. He thinks violence is a huge problem. So a lot of this, he focuses on trying to grow GDP so he can have a reduction of violence. That is a very, very unique and interesting point and a very astute in my, in my, from my perspective as well. Um, so that's what he's saying. A world without growth is much more violent and much more deformed. And then he talks about that. That's another thing he believes that other people don't. He says, people generally don't think about the problem of violence as quite as central as I think it is. I think it's a deep problem on a human level. There's a lot of room for violent conflict in human societies. There are a lot of different traditions where human beings are, if not evil, they are dangerous. And then, so that's his opinion. Now he's going to contrast that with how, what normal people, regular people think. He says, there's a bias in late modernity that humans are by nature good. 
they are by nature peaceful. That is not the norm, meaning the norm in in our human existence. If you go back and study like the the behavior between two between people, people don't believe it, meaning violence, is that deep of a problem. He does. Um, so then he gets to the point where he's talking a lot about Rene Girard's theory that influences a lot of his thinking. His book that um, that Peter recommends is actually sitting right next to me. It's called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. And he says, uh, Pete, this is Peter on Rene Girard's theory. It's a theory about human psychology uh, as deeply mimetic, meaning you copy other people. You imitate people. It's how you learned your parents' language. You also imitate desire. And when two humans desire the same thing, that can lead to conflict. And that conflict usually results, if it's not resolved peacefully, it's resolved by violence. That violence is the lowest common denominator of human conflict. There are all sorts of mimesis that can lead to mass violence and insanity. It's both what enables human culture to function, but it's quite dangerous. And then Peter realized how big of a problem was because he was engaged in mimesis. And he's like, I've been hyper-tracked. I went to Stanford undergrad, Stanford Law School. Then I got hired by the, a really fancy Manhattan law firm. This is nothing he actually chose for himself. It's just what other people thought he should do, and he didn't question it. Then he starts having these thoughts, like, why am I at Stanford? Why am I doing all the things I'm doing? I think that's important to everybody listening to this. Like, just sit down and, like, pause. It's really easy to, like, to, to go through life. It's, it's too laborious to, to, to think deeply about every single thing. It's impossible. The world is too complex. So a lot of us use heuristics and, and little shortcuts to get through life. I do. I'm sure you do as well. But there, this is very valuable. And there's been times in my life where I'm like, I'm unhappy about something. I can't figure out why. And usually it's because I've just been papering over thoughts and haven't been stopped and thought. So just sit there and be like, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Is it really me that wants to do this? Is it my parents that are telling me what to do? Is it my friends? Is it the, this person I see on Instagram or on YouTube? Like, where is this desire coming from? And it's very, very difficult um, to answer that question. It's not an easy question. And then he just talks about in general, like this, 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 the, this mimetic theory. It's, it's a prison through which one can look at a lot of things that I've found to be quite helpful. Um, and then I'll end on this. And I would just say, like, again... I think this podcast, I've listened to it three times. Um, that's why I wanted to send this out yesterday, but I just wanted to really th- make sure I understood what he was saying um, because he is a its a very unusual thinker. And that obviously doesn't mean um, like anything. Like I don't need to agree with everything they say. I just like people that like make me stop. I'm like, wait a minute. Have I actually thought about this? Like, I don't know if I have. So he says, one of the challenges in resetting science and technology in the 21st century, meaning getting it to accelerate again, is how do we tell a story that motivates sacrifice, incredibly hard work, and deferred gratification, and a story that is not intrinsically violent?